0: Oh, this sounds fun. Now I'm interested in what you have to say. Welcome back to another episode of the Refactored Podcast, where it's our goal here to suck a little less every day. My name is Chris Tonkinson. And my name is Frank Cole. And this is episode number 37, recorded August 31st. 2021. How you doing, Frank?
1: Uh, I'm good. I'm tired. (laughs) I turned forty. I turned forty in a couple days, and uh, I am feeling it. (laughs) Oh, that's tired. That's a weird way to
0: pronounce depressed. I haven't heard it said that way before. Is that from the French? (laughs) <laughs> yeah no it's so it's, seriously no seriously what what je- small red coupe are
1: you going to buy
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> i'm actually very happy with the car i've got if i if i did do the midlife crisis car though it would probably be something like a ford mustang is probably what i would grab yeah um yeah i, I, I like those so um but i'm actually really happy with the with the vehicle i've got and uh yeah you know it's uh it, that's that, yeah. that's those that's Datsons, not a they're good they're they last a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's I have, a- all right,
0: so I, I, I got to start with a correction. I got to start oh, okay. with a correction here because we peddled some hardcore misinformation last week. And we, we did. Can't, this this cannot stand. Oh, okay. yeah, we did. We did. I did. Um, according to the Uden wentworth scale, a boulder is defined as a particle of sentiment greater than 10.1 inches in diameter. So, uh, a 900 pound boulder, that is absolutely a boulder. And mm-hmm. I had no grounds to claim that it was a small boulder. Um, <laughs> typically, boulders, uh, so when you say, the boulders, book of knowledge. Yeah. Right. So, say, if, uh, boulders can be very much larger than that. That is actually like the top of the Uton Wentworth scale is boulder. Like, it's everything from 256 centimeters and up. So, I don't know when a boulder becomes something more like, I don't know what would be above that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I would, I would suggest that the mean boulder weight is probably much greater than 900 pounds, but you were not incorrect in what you had said and I (laughs) called you on it. So you are in fact, at this point we have, I can't, what I can say is that we do not have evidence that you are
1: not qualified to be a (laughs) boulderologist. There we go. I am not necessarily unqualified (laughs) to be a boulder That is that's quite the the nicest compliment I can pay you today.
0: (laughs) 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 Oh you said ten inches? Mm -hmm. Boulders are kind of tiny. One inches, two hundred and fifty six centimeters,
1: yeah. That's pretty tiny. I would have expected boulder definitions to you know what's what's under what do they call it underneath of that mark? Is it just a rock? Is that it? Oh, golly.
0: No, it's so it's it, that you went where stale is um, it scale is the boulders, the top. It's over 256 centimeters or 10.1 inches. And then under that is a, a cobble. And then under that is a various sizes of of gravel and pebble. Like, I don't I mm. don't ask me any more questions than this. I didn't it's not like I it's I didn't go down one of my uh, classic Wikipedia YouTube black holes for six hours and emerge bearded and bewildered. Uh, suddenly full of knowledge about an entire topic. I just looked at, you know, what was up older and that's, that's what I found. So I stopped there.
1: Oh man. I did actually go down one of those rabbit holes over the weekend. I was, um, uh, looking at gear for my, for my car, you know, like emergency gear. And I ended up just doing this deep dive into, um, uh, what do they call it? Um, uh, E-, e and R the egress and rescue. I think is what it is. It's basically mm-hmm. all the tooling and stuff that firefighters use to get people out of cars, out of buildings oh, to get yep. themselves into a building so that they can rescue people. Mm-hmm. So all the gear and equipment they use, I found this whole thing about opening how you open all these various kinds of doors and the tools that they use. Super neat stuff. Um, I should cool stuff. It is really cool stuff. I found it. There was a, there was one YouTube uh thing in particular that was a a guy who does the training for uh fire departments and uh he was laying out all the different types of doors and how most of them are breachable and here's how you do it and he's you know he had video and demonstrating it and it was really cool it was really really neat so um uh that's that was a uh, that was a fun that was a fun little little deep dive um but anyway yeah doors yeah. are not as strong as you think
0: they are no they're not is the and, takeaway and most they are, they of are not as as and most of it's Go because ahead, sorry, of code
1: most of it's because of code i found out like the yeah, most of, of the is, weaknesses yeah. are are actually sort of mandated by law so every door's well, code yeah code and cost code and cost but code a and lot cost. but a lot of code so for example the yeah you know how um, some um, front door handles on houses have a um, you you grip it like, like a with thumb a push and lever, actually, mine push does. Lever. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm I'm making the motion mm-hmm. for everybody to see on the podcast that I'm squeezing on with this my on thumb. this audio yeah. show. Yeah. If you imagine, right. uh, so to to actually give the visual, imagine you know every bad guy in every movie no, just ever do it. with the with the bomb switch. Do it. Do a thumbs up. Do a thumbs up, and then put your thumb down. Yeah, like that's that not motion. as fun. It's like no. a handle under a lever. My 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 analogy and descriptor was much more fun. So if, imagine every bad guy with a bomb in a movie ever that switch that he holds in his fist. And then he smashes the plunger with his thumb. That's the motion, right? That's a much better. See, I thought mine was better. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I, I, so that door, (laughs) so that door handle, uh, is actually, you can't use that in most public buildings because it's not code because what if the person doesn't have a thumb or hands? And Mm -hmm. so, the doors have to be those those side swing hinges or the push, push bars bar. or things like that. Mm. Yeah. And every single one of those is so eminently breachable. It's ridiculous how easy it is to to get around those. Yeah. So anyway. Well, and, the, and the, like all like public places,
0: the egress doors, they always swing out. That's mm-hmm. another, that's a code thing. Every time you go to enter a store. People that try to push a, like a store or something door in, you're wrong. It's going to be swing out. Uh, and that's, and that's a fire code, right? It's easier mm-hmm. to, to force it open from the inside in case there's, you know, a stampede right. of human
1: flesh. Right. Which means yeah. that you could just take it off the hinges. In most cases, you can just like right. take the hinge pins out yeah. and just pull With the, the exposed door exposed hinge. Yeah. It's, it's crazy.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so anyway, yeah, 40. Tired. There's
0: there's an analogy there somewhere about software security being about layers because no individual layer is as good as you think.
1: Mm-hmm. Is this
0: is this a veiled analogy here or No, actually how this was not do we I mean
1: get? I no. wasn't going I wasn't going <laughs> highbrow with it. It's absolutely true. Uh what what I found interesting in in watching the video was even the layers in this case a lot of it was security through obscurity if you want to really uh go with the analogous direction here. Uh you know like things like Uh, you know, the plate covers that cover the um the hinge area the um the latch area. You you, you, you can get you can get around those. You just take a piece of wire and you basically pull it instead of these um these flat metal Mm -hmm. plates that they use. Um it's crazy. They opened up And even locks, like uh even
0: basic like a basic tumbler. Basic tumblers. I have a friend. I have a friend who can can pick a fairly quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I almost spit that out. Uh, it's not yeah, not offering as as
1: as much safety as you you may believe. Mm-mm. No. Mhm. No way. Um I I think my favorite one was the um the push bar doors. He was opening them with a um with a a, a square from from Home Depot, like just the, you know, the big metal flat piece oh, with yep. the right angle. And he just bent it a little right. bit on one end, shimmied it through the door, put it over top of the bar and just pulled back. And that was it. Like, yep. <laughs> it's like pops stupid right easy open. pops right open. So. Well, I,
0: and you think about like, if, if you think about, if you think about your home and if you have like a single family home then you probably thought about like home security to some degree, whether or not it's just changing the locks or whatever. Sure. Um, And I think people like I I live in a nicer area and there are some folks uh, in the neighborhood who are really religious about making sure all of the all the doors are always locked, which is not a bad habit. I'm not suggesting anybody do otherwise necessarily. But meanwhile, they've got these extra tall. I forget what they're called. Cottage, maybe extra tall windows lining the front of their house on either side of the door. It's like if somebody really wants to get in, they're just going to put a brick through the giant glass, mm-hmm. no, not plate glass, but giant window next to the door. Like it's no. not actually, you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but it's yeah. about, it's about causing the adversary to spend, uh, both time and noise mm-hmm. getting in. That's, that's kind of the deterrent effect when you, when you layer these things on. And, and if I'm trying to keep this, like when we talk about like software security, you're trying to make it take time and have the adversary make a lot of noise on their way in. That is to say, they're stepping over network boundaries and they're creating log entries as they move laterally or as they traverse your network or or as they try to brute force um, different components, you know, fuzz things. Like, they, it's causing them to make virtual noise. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like, so to pivot a little bit from that, You've heard of the, not the pineapple, that's the different, uh, the, um, uh, shoot, there's a, a company who is, uh company's been produced, they're actually doing really well in the market, uh, little honeypot devices.
1: Um, I don't know.
0: Uh, Uncle Leo's always, always shilling them on the, on the Twit network. Uh, what are they wow. called? Um, is it like uh, a- the, the name will come to me. I'll drop it in the show notes. Um, they're not very cheap. What do they do? Uh, you say honey just little honeypots you put on your network. Okay,
1: you put them on. So, honeypot is a. I know uh, maybe what that's a honey- like a
0: security industry term thing. Um, I know yeah, what it is, So, so you basically, it. Uh, right? So you. Oh, okay. Just just to make sure
1: you everybody knows that you know that we know that right, you know. Right. Right. I mean, this has nothing you to do know. with me not knowing <laughs> yeah. what honeypots um, are. I totally know what honeypots are. I don't know what <laughs> this particular honeypot does, no. but but go ahead. No, So it's just, it's, it's a little, it's probably
0: like an Arduino or something sized device. Mm -hmm. You put it on your network, you, you stick an ethernet plug into it. And then, um, I think it's got a web UI and you can have it emulate an open telnet relay or an SSH server or an Samba share, pardon me, or, you know, like a hundred different kinds of network appliance. Um, and then what happens is. It's not. It doesn't serve any other use on your network than just sitting there looking like something attractive for a would-be attacker. And nobody within your company is actually accessing this to do any useful work because there's no legitimate purpose to be accessing this thing. And so what happens, though, the software that's running, anytime somebody does attempt to access a service on the device, it fires off a bunch of alerts. Because that's a pretty good indication that somebody's doing something they shouldn't be doing. So, like, if they try to access, you know, if it's pretending to be a, a an NFS share or something, if somebody tries to mount that and and grab a file, it n- there's no legitimate business purpose. Nobody in the company even knows that it's there. It, it can only mean that somebody's trying to do something, you know, color outside the lines at the best. Right. Um, and in the in in the in the advertised case, then it's a clear what we call IOC indicator of compromise that there's somebody in your network that's kind of poking around looking for stuff to get into. Um, And I still, I still can't think of the name of it, but it doesn't matter. Well, the other thing they do is they've started, uh, which I've, I've thought about um, integrating into some of my products over the years. uh, Honey, that's, I think it's, I don't know if this is like an officially accepted name, but honey tokens. So like you could have, you can inject like, false records into your actual database Mm -hmm. and then have monitoring so that like if that user record is ever accessed or if somebody ever does like an API request against that GUID, like it's not distributed or disseminated. It's not used in the application. Like the only way somebody from the outside could have gotten that is that your database was compromised. Um, And they do the same thing. They'll put like, they can allow you to embed uh the same fact that they're using macros or something but embed links into like pdfs or word docs to you know so that it can try to alert you if somebody opens it up and um it's pretty cool stuff it's i've I've thought about deploying those they're that one company and again i'm I'm gonna beat myself up not finding it but um that one company they're pretty uh they're pretty pricey like they're built Mm -hmm. their their target is enterprise i'm pretty sure
1: well, I um, mean anybody who's built putting so an okay. actual device on the network as a honeypot is going to be I mean that's a by definition that's a big network. I mean you could run your own virtual yeah, honeypots yeah. just you know if you've got a network canary. already. Canary.
0: Canary from from Thingst. Yeah, the Thingst canary is the thing. The one. They, they do have an open source version, Thingst, ThinkST. ThinkST. Um, they do have its a canary canary.tools um, there is open on GitHub. There is like a Docker container. That's like a light version of this that you can run, uh, open source. I've thought about playing with that.
1: And let's see it's here. A neat, it's, it's a neat an thing. Annual. Oh, it's an annual subscription too. Interesting. And oh, wow, it is pricey. Yeah. So they, oh, 75 so they the an annual and sub. And is pricey. Yeah. So they're not mm. even giving you all you, you, you know, it's pricey. Cause they're not giving you all the actual pricing. They just, the site says an annual sub of, 7,500. That gets you five Canary devices. Your dedicated hosted console. Oh, you're giving me the console to the thing I bought. How, how gracious of you. Your own Canary <laughs> tokens server. I'm not sure what that is or does. It sounds like something similar so that's to what the you're call describing. Back. That's the callback. Oh, okay. Yeah. As mm-hmm. well as support, maintenance, and upgrades. <clears throat> so, yeah, that's, that's 100% focused on. Uh, the high end, but yeah. I'm with you. Enterprise. You actually don't need you. You don't need any special stuff to put together your own honeypot. It's 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 really a matter of of intelligence. It's like you said, you know, having a if there's a record in your database that you know no one else has, all you have to do is keep an eye out for somebody doing something with that token. If they if they do, then you know that right. something has has gone awry. And so you, it's it's kind of what I always found really fun about. Well, but that's, but that's
0: argument. So you're not, you're not wrong, but that's like the, well, nobody needs to buy a keyboard. They can build one. It's like, well, yeah. But no, no, like no, no, How much time, how good is it going to be? How comprehensive? Like, well, this no. is really. But yeah, mean, you're right. That's some, some of this stuff, you can some do, of this basic stuff you could, you
1: honestly could cobble a lot of this together in a weekend. Yeah. You can cobble some basic stuff together. That's what I'm, that's what I'm, what I'm saying. I'm not trying to knock these guys. It's probably mm-hmm. great. I mean, at an enterprise level, this pricing is, is really dirt cheap. You know, when you've got a, you know, when you've got a budget, an yeah. annual budget of a million yeah, bucks then 7,500 is, you know, dropping the bucket for a, for a company, but still, um, do you, do you have an annual budget of a million bucks? Oh, I, I wish use,
0: if you oh. can share, sharing oh, is caring
1: for us. I would, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man.
0: What I, I, don't, do I this- guarantee you out of, out of our, out of our total listenership. If there's, if there's a security
1: team, that's got an annual budget of a million dollars, that's a giant. I would eat my hat. <laughs> yeah. That's like, that's like the entire IBM security team. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's uh, most yeah. security teams are, are, are woefully underfunded. You're talking like about Apple. rarefied air there. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, wow. you know, if, it, if it's part of a budget, that's not too bad. But my, my point was uh, twofold one, you don't need special tooling to a lot of, to do a lot of stuff. You can just get started on it. Um, there is a bunch of, Mm -hmm. there are open source things that, that you can work on. There are open source IDS systems that you can use, uh, for your intrusion detection systems that you can just hook up to your network. Uh, I have found application level, app level firewalls are, are useful too. And, uh, you know, some of this stuff. Yeah.
0: IDS and IPF there was, um. There was one we used to use back in the PHP days. PHP there was IDS. And IDS, IPFS, uh, I- IPS. PHP. I'm in the habit of now saying IPFS. It's called um, PHP
1: IDS. That's PHP IDS, right, right. Yeah, it was yeah. open source. I don't mm-hmm. think it's still supported, but that was my first foray into it. And the really nice thing about that was it didn't actually do, I, I really enjoyed it. I was a little annoyed when I first got started with it, but then I actually found I appreciated it. It didn't actually do any 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 blocking because it's an intrusion detection system. And that's what the D is. and so it would Detection, just, not prevention. It would IPS recognize, is the other side of that. Right. So it would recognize, hey, this request looks shade ball. You might want to do something with it. And so I set the thing up and I just watched the logs coming in. And over time, I was able to dial it in. And once I had an, a, a pretty concrete understanding of what it was detecting and what it looked like and when it was okay and when it wasn't, I was able to use the metrics that it was uh, fulfilling and then just turn around and just start auto blocking based on pipe it into fail to ban. And then I would just yep. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then they just basically fell to dev null. And I actually hooked it. I actually hooked it into the application. And so what would happen is I didn't give because these are attackers. You don't give attackers information. So what I would do is I would uh, make the request look like it responded legitimately like a return of 200 and send it to, you know, an innocuous page of some kind, something that wasn't linked in the site, wasn't in the sitemap or anything like that. It was just my, my drop page for bad actors. And so I was able to watch traffic that went to that page. And so just serving
0: up like a full res, uh, full res troll (laughs) face.
1: (laughs) Well, I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to eat my band, my own bandwidth to, to give them that activity. But I was, yes, I've done that in the
0: past and I just, I just feed that data right into fail to ban. Yeah. And call it a day. I don't worry about tripping them off. It's like, I'm blocking because like uh, over 99% of all that traffic is automated. Automated. So it's not like, you know,
1: Yeah, but you're still And getting, anybody
0: anybody who is actually like it a, a human attacker who's looking at it would clearly see that this is not legitimate response. Like it would tip them off that there's something wrong anyway.
1: Yeah. Um, so I would but I still want to even would always just ban. Yeah, but even the automated attacks, I don't I don't want them to, you know, get anything out of it, you know. So um I basically just returned something that was effectively the home page. And then I could just watch traffic inside that page as well. And that sometimes led to additional bad actors who you know found out from the initial bad actors you know because they were you know these logs end up out on the web and they become lists and they get distributed and so it was a way to even cast a wider net and catch more bad guys and it kind of it was it was fun putting that together and it kind of felt like uh uh it, it it kind of felt like you know the way when you were a kid you know when you when you build traps for I don't know I, my kids my kids today like building hunting rabbit traps. yeah, hunting rabbits and uh, or you know leprechaun wily coyote and yeah. you know, leprechaun traps are the thing today. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's I, I'm saying that a little tongue-in cheek because you know the work I was doing was you know actually legitimate, but there was an element of that le- that 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 energy and fun to it, you know childlike glee. Yeah, some, no, some you can be a professional yes. and still take yeah. some childlike glee yes. in your work.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And that it happens exactly like once a year,
1: but you relish it when it does. <laughs> right. Right. And so I, I, I always enjoyed the security work for that element of it, you know, finding and stopping the, yeah. um, the bad guys. It was always something that I, that I, that I really had, uh, enjoyed.
0: Yeah. I've had a recent experience, actually not, not exactly that childlike glee, but sort of the satisfaction um, because mm-hmm. I spend, I don't, I'm not on the keyboard that much anymore, like at all. Um, but I recently had, um, we had somebody was out sick and we had a, a, a client that was having some issues with uh, system performance. Um, and so I kind of had to, uh, kind of had to step in and and do some, some of the direct management. And then also, I mean, everybody's busy, right? We don't have people just laying around thinking up stuff to do. So right. um, this work to try to remediate these issues had to come from somewhere. So um, I helped a little with that and I was able to dig in and I guess the headline from this, I, I did actually want to talk to you about this. Um, the, the headline here is that, uh, MySQL's query planner is balls. Uh, it is absolute <laughs> gar, I am, I am no longer a fan of my SQL in production. Really? Um, wow. I found over the years, I don't think it. I, I don't think it scales. I mean, it's fine. And I, I still have it in production in a lot of different cases. Like I'm not, uh, I'm not saying, oh, it's, I'm not, I'm not, this is not Reddit. So I'm not saying it's garbage. And if you use it, you're a garbage person. That's not right. My, right. Um, what I'm saying though, is that I think moving forward, I will strongly prefer Postgres if I've got an opportunity to use that instead. I've seen it. um Scale a little more gracefully. Some of the tooling seems a little more complete. Not sure, I won't say, but but complete in it's in definitely more design. robust. It's um, definitely but, more
1: robust, I think, than MySQL. Yeah,
0: for sure. Um, but but the query planner, I was just doing obscene things. We had a we had a case where there's there's a query running and it's just it's selecting some columns. And it's got, uh, I'm going to say, like seven joins, right? just pulling in reference data for a primary record, right? Most of okay. it was reference data. Right. Um, and then some, con- some simple conditions in the where clause, you know, where active equals yes and date is less than such and such, you know, whatever. Um, and I'm pulling this in. And what I came to realize is that if I include – and, you know, remember I said there were seven joins um, – Five of those were no issue, right? It was able to see based on the conditions and based on the joins. It was able to look at the tables, select from the correct table first, and intelligently choose that that's the table I want to pull from. And it has an index on one of the join columns. That squeak was my chair arm under oh, my desk. I apologize. For I that. thought it was a kid. Um, that I saw came you look over your, your shoulder there. Yeah. <laughs> no. No. Um, What I found out, though, there were two other tables that were being joined in that were pure reference, like just give me the title and join on the ID kind of things. That was it. Including those in the query caused the planner to do a table scan on the reference and then a manual table scan and lookup on the primary table instead of keeping with I'm going to look at the primary table by the index that makes sense and just pull this in for reference. And if I included... Either one of these two, you know, last two tables in the joint, the query planner barfed and the query took three, 400 seconds instead of returning with an index in a reasonable sub-second time. I was just, and and it's not just one example. I've seen this now a few times. I've been digging in over the last, say, two months, um, and the query planner just doing stupid things, (laughs) frankly, just. Uh, really making poor choices. And I'm updating table statistics and I'm, you know, I'm doing all that kind of stuff. Now, some of it was easy to coerce. Like if I take that query and I simply tell it, use the right index on the right join, then mm-hmm. it, it's smart enough. It Like it follows the, you know, and it does the right thing. But I never like doing, I never like adding index hints on queries, especially when they're baked into like a report or if they're manually written in the application because you never know when that table structure is going to change and then the index isn't there. And then, you didn't remember that query was structured that way, you know, and it um, is not, not great. Not, so I'm, I'm less enthused about MySQL or uh, MariaDB, Percona, whatever variant you're using. I'm, I'm not as, I'm less impressed as time goes on. I don't know. I've never actually used the query
1: planner in MySQL. I've always done this stuff myself in app or, you know, like as part of my modeling and things like that. Or, you know, like from a Rails console. You know with, a, with the, um, you know, with the, you know, with the modeling abstraction on top of it. I don't think well, I've no, the query
0: planner, actually... the query planners, well, no, all, all RDBMSs have a query planner. It's an internal mechanism that looks at the structure of your query, compares it to the structure of the database, including indexes, and then compares it to table statistics that it collects over time and figures out, turns your query and actually generates like, here's the strategy I'm going to use to pull the data. First, I'm going to go and look at this table. And use this index with this condition. And then I'm going to take those intermediate results and I'm going to join them with this table using this condition. And this, it's the thing that actually translates your query into like a plan to get you your data.
1: Oh, um, even in production? I, thought we, so you can can about meta, I thought we were about, I talking about like a meta reflection tool here where you're actually building a query that's no, 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 no. telling you how it's going to do it. You know no I mean? well, no, no, I'm not talking about
0: an ORM. No, no. I'm talking about the actual MySQL query planner. like once I send it and whether whether the query was hand-rolled or generated by an ORM, you ship the final right SQL over to the database, and then the query planner, like I said, just converts that into basically a strategy for how it's going to fetch you the data that you've asked for. Um, and so you can get that uh, uh, if, you, if you go to a MySQL console and you just, whatever your query is, just prepend the word explain. Mm-hmm. And then you'll get output. So like if you go show table, you can see all the columns and types and whether they're null and, and mm-hmm. all of that. In mm-hmm. your, and then it, you can say show indexes from table and you'll see all of right. the indexes yeah. you have defined, what columns are sure. they null, right? what the cardinality is. And then there's another, and then if you say explain, and then whatever, select whatever, um, it'll show you, okay, here's a table where I'm going to, you know, especially useful for joins. Like If you're just selecting from one table, the plan is go get the thing. Does it have an index or not? Right. Um, Planning co- I mean, you can to still use that to figure out tables. what index it's using and all that, but right. But especially when you have these, these joins or maybe nested selects or temporary, like all of these more complicated things, um, then the explain will, will get it to spit you out. Here's what I'm actually going to do. And then you can see, oh, explain this query and then add an index and then explain that same query again. And you can see whether or not the planner is, is going to start using that index or not, you know, and so you can play around with these things. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty useful tool if, uh, for explain if you're having, because um, I found uh, we, we- Yeah, for whatever we reason, we did like a data center migration about, uh, last year. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, no. We're there's a there's a little bit of a delay on the on the line this morning. Oh. We keep kind please go ahead, go ahead. Uh, the
1: uh, so when you said query planner, I was thinking about um, the not just explain, but you know, like I was thinking query visualizer for some reason. I like I said, I'm tired, <laughs> and so it's. Oh, I it, think
0: that's. I think so. I mean, it's there. Yeah, but some of them no, will The visualizer tools. Now. Yeah, yeah. The visualizer and SQL Server will give you the same thing, except it can natively. When you do, when you explain in SQL Server, it will automatically present you a graphical, like a like a flow chart of, here's how the data is flowing, and here's how much is being filtered at each stage, and what index it's using. Kind of, it can show mm-hmm. you that. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, well, but, and, yeah. We thought we we did a data center migration last year. We thought, oh golly, did we have some kind of regression in hardware capacity? We were worried. We standardized. Um, it's a it's a single tenant application, so we have. Um, mm. different clients have their own install and so we thought well um, you know did this client some configuration because they were all kind of drifted configuration part of the data center migration was to standardize the you know the, the environments mm-hmm. I mean, that did some. we're looking at docker is the issue we're trying to figure out what's and, and then all of our all bar none all of our issues and it's not even data volume right we, they're no it's, um, it's not huge databases but they're not small and we thought, is database size an issue? Like, do we have a problem scaling this thing? If, if in the future we got more data, is that going to be an even worse? Nope. All of it was was uh, query complexity, query structure being able to, yeah, the, the structure of the query, some of the queries um, were not able to use indexes the way they were written. And then some didn't have indexes that were meaningful for the query. And so either one or both of those things just has solved, every single problem we've had and now things are i'm snapping like anybody can see this i you're I, uh, I just it. running lickety split. split it's it's been great
1: yeah, yeah. okay
0: <laughs> um but no i got this so anyway this has been a whole i'm like off on a tangent here uh, it was that kind of like I've, i got a little bit of a little sneak peek of what it felt like to have like job satisfaction <laughs> like i made a difference <laughs> in something i helped somebody <laughs> like not i didn't just add value by you know taking somebody's write up and putting it in the corporate template with the right color palette. Like, no, I actually did real work. I felt, I, I, so I'm feeling pretty good about mm-hmm. that. No,
1: I, that's, that's good. I, I think that, um, you know, I think the key takeaway for what you're describing, aside from that, you know, the query planner in MySQL being a little derpy, which that I, I have seen like the, where they, you know, it, yeah. it puts together a query and you go, why are you doing that? I've got this index right here. Just use this index. You know, and you've got to, sometimes you it's, get, it's right there. And then yeah. you have to do, and then you have to do that janky stuff where you're actually explicitly telling it to use this particular index. And, you know, you got to get more, more Which I don't when, like doing. It's Yeah, I don't like to do that either. Like you said, then, I mean, if the, if the, if the structure changes, if what's indexed changes, if the name of the index changes, you know, there's, there's all kinds of conditionals there that can really bork it up. Because it
0: will break. It like will if, break. If MySQL, yeah. it can't just say. When you, when you, when you suggest you say you can use index or you can force index, um, even if you're just using, which is a suggestion, it's a hint, it's not a demand. If that index doesn't exist or it can't find it, it will blow The query will not compile. Like it, it, it'll compile, I guess, but it, it won't execute the query. And so I don't, if I, if I know enough to know that I should, you should be using this index, to me, there's really no functional difference between use and force, mm-hmm. because if you're going to not execute the query, if that index no longer exists, and I'm just, I'm thinking about software resiliency, you know what
1: I mean? Um, so I don't like having to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Um, but what I found more interesting uh, is what you described, you know, in, in trying to fix your, your performance issues. And, you know, the very last thing, that, uh, the thing that it ended up being was just poor uh, index and query construction, Just that query is, hygiene that is indexing. always, yeah. so if you're experiencing it, I mean, this is a lesson. I, I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I kind of want to bonk you on the head for this one. Cause this, this seems like, I, I, I feel like you should have known better to then to like, oh, is it our infrastructure? Is it our, is it our, you know, uh, is it our, are, are the containers sized properly? Is it, you know, what, you always start with the data when you're seeing these kinds of performance issues. You always so that, start so with the, the database reason, queries. You always the, start the reason. With
0: but the, the reason we didn't in this case is because we said, "Oh yeah, the issues seem to have started around the time we migrated." And data is ever increasing in volume. So True. there were two things that changed. So if if last year things were fine and this year things were not fine, there were two things that changed in the meantime. Not how we're doing queries. Not the not the very essence. Like not. That did. That hasn't changed. Some of these queries mm-hmm. have been in place since 2012, right? And we just never, uh, never realized. And I think what happened, though, is that they were fine. I think what happened, and this is still my theory, is that data growth crossed that magical threshold where all of a sudden this stuff mattered. Like the database, mm. the, the tables were small or the query, like the tables were small enough where for whatever resources we had on the server, it was able to work around, it was still able to, to, to serve these queries successfully, maybe not in a great amount of time, but it was still able to get them out there. Um, and I think the data volume crossed a threshold where now we're starting to see cascade failures because of paging out to disk and memory, you know, and all of these kind of things kind of came up. And so what changed? Well, the hardware and the data volume. So that's kind of where we started looking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it took us a few weeks. Like, I am a little embarrassed to say it took us, like, a few weeks to actually get to the <laughs> point where we were kind of down in the database looking for problems there. Um, and then, like I say, as soon as we started looking at it, it's like, oh, well, here's, here's the problem. The yeah. first query we looked at, we have a, we have a timeout after 25 minutes because some of the reports did, you know, a little long in the tooth. Um, we had a query that was routinely like half the time timing out and getting killed at 25 minute mark jeez
1: that's a and huge now it's, report.
0: you know a th- and now it's a third of a second and it yeah. was just because we were table scanning something right and it's like but before it was fine right and so what i th- so i think it was that magical data volume threshold mm, anyway um so that's that's kind of why because I I was the same thing like oh man this is obvious and it's obvious now it was that way last year we didn't catch it like I didn't feel good about that um, but now now my my antenna are up you know what I mean <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. and we were able to I mean we were able to do a tremendous amount of remediation in a really short period of time we really did the client well I think I think they're they're happy with where we landed um, that's good uh, but that was. Yeah. It felt good. I, like I, I helped guys. I'm, I can still do this. I, I had a moment where I was like, man, I still got it.
1: You know? I, I can still do this. Of course you still can. The problem is that, you know, like doing that kind of work there, there is that immediate satisfaction. Unfortunately, it does not go beyond that, that moment. And it's also not, it's not uh multiplicative in a, in a lot of senses, you know, like it's your head, it's your hands on that keyboard, you know, cranking out that one thing versus, you know, the role that yeah. you're in now, you can instruct and lead a whole team of folks to do that same kind of thing, but they won't necessarily all have the same level of um, skill at it that uh, that you do. So, which yeah, is why so you now up. they
0: do, though, because... Well, well, but now they do because uh, while I would say after like the first, first major phase of these optimizations, we do every, I think it's every four weeks. Um, it's not exactly every four weeks. We don't always do it um, <clears throat> because uh, it's just, it's a tough thing. It is, I will say, it's just a tough thing to keep going um, with, a, with a team under a certain size. But uh, we do a shop talk. So every every four weeks, we take, uh, I think it's like 90 minutes on a Friday, and somebody presents a topic of interest. Um, so whether nice. it's a side project or a work project or explaining how not to abuse Entity Framework Core in a .NET, you know, whatever app or whatever. Um, I, I took the the liberty of the last shop talk and kind of explained, here's how indexes work, and here's what they are, and here's how you optimize for them, and here's how they're used by the query compiler, and... Here's how you can know if an index is going to make it like walking the whole team through this mm-hmm. um, so that everybody was aware, like, hey, this is something we need to be on the lookout for, not just for that product line, but, um, but across the board. Because I've seen other cases where in, in this and other jobs on other products where everybody's complaining about performance and it turns out there's a bad query somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's usually because the query's table scanning, whether that's because you don't have an index or it's not using the index or whatever the reason is your table scanning and now your app performance is in the garbage. Um, And so I did, I kind of shifted back into my like, okay, now let's disseminate this. Let's make me not the only one that can do Mm -hmm. this work because I don't scale, you know? That's Um, right. So I had good engagement on, had good
1: engagement on that shop talk. It was good. Nice. That's really good. And that is a, I mean, that's a number one thing that I think a lot of people screw up. It's also one of the reasons why databases for me are always one of the number one suspicions because nearly any engineer on your team at any skill level is going to have, you know, is going to have, you know, built some of the models, built some of the queries and things like that. Yeah. And if you're more junior on this stuff and you're not totally, you know, you know, totally in tune with what's going on under the hood, you're just kind of, mm-hmm. you know, oh, the ORM is just sort of taking care of this for me. Then you can end up doing yeah. some, some, some stupid stuff. Inadvertently, but, you know. Some damage.
0: Yeah. And you can do some damage. Well, one of the, one of the ones like, one of the ones that we remediated wasn't built by the ORM. It was one of the reports. Um, so it was kind of like hand, hand-rolled hand SQL. And there was a conversion. They were doing a date comparison. And uh, they used MySQL has like a date function. Um, they were, con- I think they were converting a timestamp to a date and then doing a less than, right? So uh, everything that happened after this point in time. Well, the problem is, that when you, and, and that column that like updated on or created on whatever the timestamp column was, was indexed, right? And so the problem is that the query planner is not able to use the index when you're transforming the column's value before a comparison. And so changing that from, you know, just removing, uh, removing the um, wrapping function, removing the column manipulation. And refactoring mm-hmm. the query to do the inequality without that conversion, now all of a sudden we can use the index that's already defined, and boom! And that was the case with this query that kept timing out. Mm-hmm. Um, it had to do a table scan because you're saying, okay, let me not. I don't want to compare the the value in the column to some other data. I want to compare a transformed version. Well, uh-huh. the, the engine has to table scan. And it's a 300 million row d- table, yep. you know, it's got to read all that in and then transform it and then do the compare. Yep. And so a little bit of refactoring to make sure that it could it could use the the native value. And, you know, and so that was actually one of the one of the example. It was like the first example in in the shop talk just to show like, hey, here's something that can go wrong, because even with an ORM, you can pass it like custom conditions and stuff like that. Um, and yep. if you're transforming the value there, you can shoot yep. yourself in the foot really easily. And it's tough from the application to find that stuff because you can't, like, grep the whole source code. So my recommendation, I guess, if you're, if, you're, if you're out there struggling with app performance, my recommendation is make sure your slow query log is turned on and your unindexed query logs are turned on, whatever they're called in your database of choice. And just watch those and then sort the log by, you know, time of ex- time, you know, execution time. time. Start yeah. at the top start at the query that takes 4,000 seconds, fix that one and work your way down. Yeah, Because what we found was like half of our slow logs, I'm I'm not even going to say half, probably two thirds of our slow query logs were queries that were totally fine. There was nothing wrong with them, but they were blocked because some long running query that was not optimized had a table lock somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so we were backing up queries that were perfectly fine. And so log it, start at the top, work your way down. This is my... This is my new advice. And, and just spend five minutes on Wikipedia looking at what indexing is and what the left prefix rule left prefix rule, why left prefix is is important, mm-hmm. and
1: you will be, you will be writing queries like a champ in no time.: Yeah, the beautiful thing, one of the reasons I absolutely love doing query building and things like that is when you're really good at it, the queries you build are still butt stupid. They are so plain Jane. Like I always strive, I always got, simple is best. I got simple a code best yeah. because well, simple is fast too. I mean, when it comes to queries, even for large, especially for large data sets, you want simple queries to move really fast. Um, yeah. And yeah. so I always got a, I always got a, a a code smell when my queries started pulling in lots of tables. That's when I started to you know like anything more than say three. Three was kind of my magic number. If I started pulling in more than three tables in a single query, I started looking at, okay, what am I doing here? What am I trying to do? Is my, am I trying to do too big or complex of an operation at once? Is my data not structured properly? And trying to simplify it. And it usually ended up being some combination of changing application logic, changing the date, table structures, and you know, changing the, you know, the query, maybe breaking it up into, into two sequential steps or something like that. Um, so, because once you have the nice thing is it's well, and those can be at odds, they can be, those can oh, be yeah, at odds yeah, because these,
0: normalizing your tables more will cause you to have to do more joins. It will cause you a more complex query to retrieve the data in fullness. Um, that was sure. one of our other problems. We, we wound up, uh, instead of pulling, and it wasn't a big table, but it was a reference material. And instead of just pulling the whole thing and caching it in the application and then doing a local, you know, hash lookup, mm-hmm. we were looking at the database for individual records on every, you know, iteration of whatever the process was, and that actually caused us a lot of a lot of slowdown rather than just pre-caching, you know, pulling the whole reference table from the DB at once. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can wind up having to do stuff like that if your if your data is More normalized, then you're going to be doing more joins, right? Because you got to, in order to get the equivalent information out into your app, you've got to look at more different places, and there can be some tension there.
1: Yeah, for oh for sure. And then sometimes you end up, you know, you start building a set of data that you think is going to be distinct, and it ends up over the evolution of this table A and table B are pretty much the same thing. They should all live. I've got this one to you know I've got this one to one key relationship here. They should just all be in the same table. So I'm just going to go ahead and you know, refactor my structure so that these tables are now just one table. And now I can just query that one table one time with no joins. I mean, that's as a simple example, that that happens. But, um, you know, sometimes you've got, you know, you're trying to pull in a lot of data and spread across a bunch of different tables, you know, for good reasons, one to many's and Mm -hmm. things like that. And uh, if the query gets too big, you can end up running into those performance issues. But if you do two distinct queries using indexes- how how crazy those schemas oh, get Oh they're not. Well, that's what I'm talking about. I come from an e-com background. That's that's sort of I mean, that's yeah. the, I cut my teeth Oh, Oh, heavy,
0: that's never that's never come up before. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know. So, uh, you know, the e-com because of just the, the sheer dimensionality of the data, things get really complicated really yeah. fast, and one of the things you can do to make things a little easier on yourself is to actually break it into two discrete pieces. So, even though you you end up pulling, you know, some of the same information twice, by doing it as two distinct queries, you can use slightly different filtering and get results. The two queries with proper filters run faster than one mega query, let's say. And then you can use your, you know, then you, you know, neck it down further once you've got it loaded in. But I mean, that's not a hard and fast rule. No. It's it's kind of a, you know, in some cases it no, works, but it sometimes some cases plays it out.
0: And not just in databases, right? Like, look at architecture. Uh, like, risk architecture, it may, it may take seven instructions in a risk architecture to do the work that one CISC chip can complete, but risk can sometimes get those seven instructions done faster than it takes mm-hmm. Intel to, to get its one, you know, to get the results out. And so it can be the case that, like, decomposing the problem into a couple of simple, to your point, a simple query is going to be a faster query. Mm-hmm. Decomposing that a little bit um, and then some, some smart app caching, you know, you don't always want to do that yeah, because caching c- and naming things. Right. But, um, but yeah, that can be a, that can be a valuable exercise, but I think just, just turn on the slow query log yeah. and actually pay attention to it. Like pay any attention to it.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it, it's interesting that you brought up this database thing. Cause, uh, the, I found this really, there was this fun story. So, um, you know, I'm a gamer and, uh, my, um, my poison of choice lately has been across a couple of things, but one of my consistents has always been world of warcraft i'm I'm just a huge fan of the of the MMO genre and uh I have found a balance yeah that you're does a Warcraft addict I know I know and i well I have found a balance where it does not eat my life um so it's uh it's kind of like i I, I liken it to uh you know going going out for an evening to you know, play on a you know an adult sports team. It's kind of the same shtick for me at this point. You know, I do I do a uh, we do a raid. They get fatter
0: instead of fitter. Yeah, it's,
1: well, I well and I go to the gym three times a week to counterbalance that. But yes, that's true. Um, but it's it's a it's a camaraderie <laughs> thing, and so I do that two, I do that two nights a week uh, for a couple hours, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, in uh, they recently. Uh, in the latest set of content, they were having this uh they were having some performance issues with one of the encounters now these these encounters the, these these scripted fights are uh they tend to be very processor intensive because you have twenty to thirty people all at once so twenty to thirty people you have you have twenty to thirty endpoints on on the in real time twenty to thirty endpoints mm-hmm. with a instance server which is likely an abstraction for multiple servers under the hood that is coordinating mm-hmm. the event as it happens and triggering certain scripted events and you know handling the logic of yeah the 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 enemies and the and the fighting and things like that and you've got a lot of you've got a lot of traffic you have a lot of things going on and uh normally um Normally it's not a problem, but they went, uh, they went a little ham in this last set of content, and they got this one. There's this one fight. Uh, of course, it's the you know it's the capstone fight for the for the latest content. It's 15 minutes long. The entire encounter is 15 minutes long for perspective. Mm-hmm. Most encounters five minutes tops, tops. So this thing is huge. Okay. It's far and away. So this the is long- a slog. This is a slog. It's the longest fight they've ever done. But that's not what's interesting about this. What's interesting about this is, um. The complexity that they put into it. Normally, in order to keep, in order to keep the um, uh, the messaging and the bandwidth and you know just the just the overall load of these things at a minimum, you fight. The entire thing takes place in a single defined space. The space doesn't change. You just simply move around mm-hmm. it. Things happen inside of it. It's just this one little compartment. And the number of things, the, the, the incoming variables are limited. You might have, you know, a, one major enemy and then a couple minor enemies. And that minor enemy might die and then get, you know, recreated later and things like that. So there's always, there's always a, a capper on these things. And none of those caps existed with this, with this one fight. They, uh, they, it goes through three entirely separate distinct areas. Uh, one of them is actually a progression zone That evolves as you go through it. It has ads that spawn repeatedly through it. It has unique mechanics. And it's just big. It's just really, really big. And so they were having these performance issues and they uh, you know, put out a post saying, you know, we see this, we're working on it. And I thought this would be a fun, I wanted to share this because they they gave this explanation to this gaming audience, which, you know, there's a lot of nerds that play video games, but not all video gamers are are tech nerds. You know what I mean? So the 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 post that they put out describing yeah, the problem there's overlap but it's not total so they and i think part of it too is you know just sensitivity to whatever it is they screwed up they didn't want to come right out and say you know in in you know stark detail yeah. in a in a post-mortem fashion here's what happened um so mm-hmm. they they had this description and i wanted to read it to you and i've been trying to die uh, to to Reverse engineer what's actually going on under the hood, and I haven't been able to. And so I kind of thought, Oh, this, would be this a- sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> all right. So I'm going to, I'm now just gonna- I'm
0: interested in what you have to
1: say. Yeah. <laughs> After all that, now you're interested. Yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, now I'm listening. <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, received reports uh, of of lag. And uh, this is from, um, so World of Warcraft, this is Sanctum of Domination. That's the, the latest patch. And then the fight is uh, a character called Sylvanas. Been um, getting these reports, we're trying to solve them. Most common complaint was that there was a burst of lag when it was first engaged. Our server performance uh, group dug into those reports and we found the cause. There are a higher than usual number of calculations being done at the start of the fight. To facilitate the complex mechanics of the encounter. That's what I just finished recapping for you. It's a big fight, lots of mm-hmm. things. And so it's, mm-hmm. it, as you kick it off, it's doing all that maths. Um, we're looking for ways we can potentially improve it, but we have to be careful not to change the design or the mechanics of the encounter. Here's one of those situations where you have to balance two different things. You have the performance, but you yeah. also have the actual needs of the information. Very much like what we just described with... Um, Server joins and things like that. You, you need to get the information out and you want to do it fast. Those two things are often at odds. Um, while this is something we think. We and can... sometimes the
0: logic you need and they're saying in this case, I'm sorry, I keep st- this. It's, this lagged there's a lot. What they're saying it. in I'm this case is literally that. Yeah. Yeah. What they're what they're literally saying, though, is that is that the, the logic they want to perform is irreducibly complex. Yes. Right. So to to change the nature of the logic, it is computationally complex and addressing that would necessarily alter the flow of the logic that they're trying to look, you know, they're trying to bring here. And so
1: they actually they kind of wave the white flag here. They say, while this is something we think we can improve over time. There will still be a few seconds of server lag on pull for now. So we tried to fix it up a little bit, but the fight is still the fight and we can't totally solve it. Um, Okay. so there's that. And that sort of We talked about that. So outside the outside of that starting moment, our main challenge in diagnosing these lag reports came from the fact that lag was reported in almost every phase of the fight. Again, really long in time and lots of locations. It was it was geographically big in a three dimensional space. Uh, And Mm -hmm. we were unable to reproduce that lag in our test cases. Also very common, you know, oh, works fine when I test it Mm -hmm. in the test environment. In addition to examining our own internal testing, we utilized our performance analysis tools on actual live raids that reported they were experiencing lag. The server always appeared to be functioning smoothly. This guided our focus elsewhere. Okay, so what they're saying here is that they have performance analysis tools, very much exactly probably the same tools that you and I use on our own servers, and they're monitoring the servers from the raids. And so what that means is, okay, so a team reports a problem. And says, hey, we were if I'm interpreting on Tuesday- this.
0: If I'm interpreting this correctly, yeah, they've got metrics on their hosts and they're seeing, look, when when we look at the instance server and we see the new RAID start, we do not see excessive pressure on IOPS at the disk level, uh, memory utilization, paging or thrashing, whatever OS they're on, uh, CPU, like there's nothing that's obviously pegged or problematic when the server's loading that would indicate that's a hardware bottleneck that is resulting in the lag the users are experiencing.
1: Right. And so the team, and what I find fun about this is, you know, the team just sort of files a bug report. This is the stuff that I, I don't think most people think about the team file. The, 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 the player files a bug report. Hey, I was on a raid last night about this time and we were having this trouble. The team from that point, okay, I know the account, which means I can find the user, which means I can find the character, which means I can find the instance. And so they backtrace all the way to mm-hmm. the exact Event that happened, which it all gets stored. Mm-hmm. It's all just data. It's all just events, and so they're able to backtrack yeah. to that timestamp and then map match up that timestamp with their server analysis logs for that instance, and they can see, okay, this was on you know server you know uh, RAID server A. Really simplifying things here, but you know RAID server A at this time. All right, now I'm just going to look at what happened with the performance of that server through that time period, and they were mm-hmm. seeing no problem server was doing what it was supposed to do. Okay. So that means the server itself isn't choking per se. All right, good. All right. So they moved on from that. Uh, What we eventually discovered is that the Sylvanas fight in particular is very messaging heavy. This is where I start to, they start to go abstract on me and I I, I wanted some help. Uh, Very messaging heavy. The mechanics involved require sending many frequent updates to the player's Game clients, the local game client, the thing that actually lives on your machine in your house, which Mm -hmm. in itself isn't a problem. Sending lots of messages is literally how the game works. However, we discovered that an unrelated change to how we organize and distribute server processes across our server hardware, combined with accumulated changes over time to how our hardware server infrastructure is organized resulted in our server processes being more concentrated across our hardware i am still trying to parse that right. sentence <laughs> read that one read that one again for me read that All one. Right, again. let's go in pieces let's go in pieces because there's actually three stages to it i think we discovered that an unrelated change something changed not sure what hardware software not sure at this point unrelated change to how we organize and distribute server processes across our server hardware okay so there was a change Mm -hmm. to how they organize and distribute processes across hardware so this to me sounds like something like kubernetes where okay we are um if you're distributing processes across hardware there's a dynamicism there which means that there are going to be um there's probably a pool of units to do jobs this is probably like a worker pool is what i'm thinking pool of
0: there's a pool of compute no, or that, or they're using uh, that, or they're using Elixir or Lang. They're using a functional language, and they've got a pool of compute resources. And so, uh, how they're distributing actual compute over a pool of hardware is, uh, t- to my mind, I think in in, in 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 a case like this where they need burstability, um, they need resiliency, and they have a lot of work to get done in a short period of time. You think high parallelization, you think time sensitivity. Mm-hmm. I start thinking they're using some of the same tooling that the telecom industry uses, right? Functional languages. Could be. Like if you look for jobs in Erlang, for example, overwhelmingly you're going to be in the telecom sector, right? Because okay, that's so exactly have... their requirement as well. Okay. All
1: um, right. So this is actually so I, I'm
0: thinking an unrelated change to how compute is distributed over their hardware means to me, either you're right there. It's some kind of container deployment thing or it's, change to like their functional programming runtime or some. I, I, think, I think we're thinking along the same lines. Though, yeah, we're, we're definitely in terms so of interpreting pool,
1: that. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is the virtual pool of resource, whatever it is, The there is an underpinning of technology, of, of, of actual physical hardware that supports that. It's going to be, you know, you have this one virtual pool, but you're going to have many machines underneath of it that actually handle that individual load. Okay. And what you want to do is, You want to distribute those processes. So, so, you know, the first message that goes in goes to the ends up working on one physical machine. The next request gets handled by a different machine so that it's distributing that work across the hardware smoothly so that it's being handled in as quickly a a fashion as as possible so that no one server, you don't want one server handling everything while all of the other workers are, uh, you know, just sitting there idle. You know what I mean? all the other underpinning servers. Well, I like say I workers. said, in a, in, a, in a functional
0: runtime, in a functional runtime, it's not just one, one external request getting pinned to one physical node, but it is, it is separate processes across separate hardware being distributed, computed, and results returned in parallel because that's what mm-hmm. the runtime is designed to do. It could be, either at this point, it could be either one of those two It could two be either things. one of those.
1: Okay, so that's that's the, you know, Change to how we organize and distribute server processes across hardware, combined with accumulated changes over time to how our hardware server infrastructure is organized. Okay, so accumulated changes over time. Hardware server. So hardware
0: server infrastructure being organized. You're talking about- Sounds like physical racks. Blades and racks and cages and trunks and like that's, yeah. Oh,
1: I think I- Okay. Okay. So I actually, uh, I, I epiphany. So how it's organized over time. Okay. Well, when I'm doing racks, what I, what I had done in the past, I, I've not done. I, I have caveat. I have not done big colo like server farm stuff. I've only done my personal stuff. But I have, I have dealt with you know multi rack arrangements and things like that before, particularly in school districts, uh, that where most of my experience comes from. There, when I have dealt with that, I have evolved my rack. Uh, the, the 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 age of things is grouped i will have i will install a rack i'll install you know the rack mounts and i'll put servers in that rack and then i might have say 3 of these rack mount towers all of my stuff goes into tower 1 and then next year when i get more gear it goes into the tower next to it and then the tower next to it. And so now, mm-hmm. fast forward, say five years. So you're thinking have-
0: that the newest hardware is the most capable, and so it's taking the lion's share of the work, which is bottlenecking the network equipment in that no. in that
1: physical space? No, 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 no. I'm thinking about, okay, so the physical organization here, stick with me. So you've got, so imagine we've got this virtual pool, and imagine we've got the hardware underpinning it. And what you're going to do for one of these virtual pools, the pool doesn't ever go away. You're just changing the, the you know, the, the, Underpinning systems out as they as they age out, and you're adding new stuff to increase capacity or to replace aged out systems. It's Very much like if you have a RAID array, say you have a RAID array, say five disks. You know, I'm going to replace yeah, one disk a year. You're belaboring
0: okay. a little bit. I get I get what you're saying. So okay. where's your where's your so, epiphany
1: here? So so you've got the so you've got this pool over top. The pool is supposed to distribute across all of the individual machines under the pool, but in the pool across the pool I have older machine I have I have a range of ages older machine presumably less capable machine less slower processor less memory something to newer machines faster processor we we'll say processes. generically lower density mhm right okay so they are changes to how the processes are distributed across the hardware the hardware itself changes to how the hardware infrastructure is organized i now have old stuff mixed with new stuff and i'm just trying to distribute it but if it's not distributing let's say that there's a problem with distribution well if i errantly distribute to a newer machine i have a newer machine in the pool it's handling more it's it's handling stuff and it'll handle it better than if a bunch of work gets dumped onto one of the older machines the older machine is going to be slower and it's all about just you know the assignment in the pool who happens Whichever number comes up. So you have if if it's not distributing properly, let's the presumption it's not distributing properly. You've got a you are you are one machine under there is getting overloaded when there are other resources that it should when it should actually utilize the other um, the other machines, but it's not. Okay, well if that, if it happens if that happens with a newer machine, it's going to handle that load better. Than if it happens with an older machine
0: yeah i get your point but they're saying that they looked at the actual server for an actual instance of this happening and they didn't see pressure on the server
1: well define yeah but define instance define pressure i mean define what they're logging to me this sounds like i mean but what, what we but we agreed with, i mean the first half of the first half of what they said right there's a there's we,
0: we we used our monitoring for an actual instance of the raid and we tracked it back to the hardware it was running on and we didn't see a problem So we didn't see, uh, you know, uh, IOPS or memory or CPU pressure on that node at the Mm -hmm. time this instance was starting, which is when the user complained that they they were having lag. My thought went because I think I think you may be onto something there uh, because they started this as saying messaging. So it's a network. Mm -hmm. There's there's a network bottleneck potentially somewhere. Mm -hmm. What I'm thinking and you're saying aging uh, as our physical infrastructure is reorganized over time, if you're right that like we have some racks over to the, to the right that are really new and some over to the left that are old, that is right. less dense. Right. So per rack, you're getting less output right. from an older rack than a newer one. But if your overall network architecture is kind of even, then what happens is you're sending, and, and let's say your load distributor is working correctly. Your assumption is it's not distributing it correctly. I'm saying, let's say it is. It's going to send because the stuff over on the right, the newer stuff, the newer racks are more compute dense, which means they're more capable, mm-hmm. a, a, an intelligent scheduler will be sending oh, more work you're over to about- the right side of the farm, which means then, and if they're saying messaging is an impact here, then I would suggest a lot, you know, a, a disproportionate of amount of work is going farther left to the newer stuff, which is causing network bottlenecks upstream of the, you know, the right side of this theoretical data center. If, if the old stuff is on the left. Right, right. So but we I didn't actually, finish
1: the thing yet. We only got. Yeah, we, we're, we're just about there. We're just about done. Uh, the last section was resulted in our server processes being more concentrated across our hardware, which is exactly what you just described. That's why I was jumping in, because that's exactly yeah, more concentrated. I, yeah. In, the, in what I was in, in talking about the first two sections of this explanation, I'm thinking about uh, your job distribution being round robin. Uh, you know, or random, or um, um, I forget the um, the one where they flag themselves, they volunteer, like I'll take that job. I forget um, I forget what you would call that one. Um,
0: well, there's least least connection count.
1: There's round robin. There's, there's, uh, there's, there's a whole bunch. There's a whole bunch of different ones. I just can't then, remember yeah. the the name of it. Um, but it, but this one, you know, you you talk about intelligent allocation. So there's actually an allocator that looks at okay, well, where is it and how much, you know which one is strongest and things like that. If you have an intelligence system like that, so like So like weighted, weighted weight, round yeah, robin. Weighted almost. round robin or something like yeah. that, then that would absolutely result in the process of being more concentrated. So I'm thinking about, I was originally thinking about the older which machines is probably getting fine, overloaded. Which is they,
0: probably fine for the newer machines in the rack because they're newer, they can do twice as much. They should have twice as much work. But if there's something upstream of that where the network, either the, the trunk or the interconnects, if there's some- because they're saying messaging has it. They're saying messaging yeah. on the client and messaging on the server has something to do with it. Um, the servers would look fine because they're able to handle that load and there's no issue. But if something upstream of them is not then also upgraded to anticipate the higher level of load, that could cause, net, which I would be surprised their net ops team wouldn't have yeah seen pretty early yeah
1: the the conclusion here in the concluding line we believe all these factors combine to make the messaging overload happen more commonly and cause lag. so uh, again, still some abstraction in there that's not fully fleshed out um, because what we're talking about is you know messaging and processing inside of the data center um, but the this was revealed as lag, but then again, lag can be caused by a whole litany of things that, you know, cause that's, yeah, the communication Mm -hmm. across the wire is slow, but was it because the message was sent slowly or because it took a while to actually prepare the message to send? So there's, you know, this doesn't totally answer the question, but I, I think we're, you know, I actually like your idea of the intelligent allocator just being not, not quite as intelligent and not taking into account, how the actual well, physical hardware is being. Well, not taking into account being. limited bandwidth. Yeah, and right. maybe, ban- maybe a bandwidth limitation too. Like you if your to-
0: old rack, like if your old data center, let's say your old racks, let's say you got 10 racks and they can each process, uh, uh, well, let's say that there's a, a, a gigabit trunk on that and, and no data center is a gigabit line, but let's say there's a gigabit line over to the left side of the, the, right, the left side of the data center with those old old racks and you've got 10 of them and they can each output uh, 100, megabits worth of data a second. Mm-hmm. And then you design a new rack and you just, and you say, okay, now I've got 20 racks. I've got 10 newer ones and I'm going to put the same kind of networking on this side. And now these racks are individually capable of pushing 200 meg worth of data. You're going to have a bottleneck on the right side of that, that network tree. But again, the net ops teams, like they're really sensitive yeah. to monitoring and they're not looking so, and, for
1: packet. Like you would see packet loss. You would see. Yeah, I, I think that, I, I think we're, I think the, um, I think the net, lag thing is a false flag here. I think we're reading too much into this because what they talk about the actual problem is all about the server hardware and the server processes. So when they say messaging, I think they mean messaging between units in the data center. And when they say lag, that's just the ultimate effect. You know, the whole thing chokes up with slow, which slows things down for recipients. But right, it's not but actually they're saying any individual,
0: network. but they're saying the actual instance servers were not under pressure. So it's well, something between them. And so, and, and if you have, and, and it's not just like one node can do all this work, right? They've got a probably a whole bunch of different services running in coordination to get these things done. If you're overloading a trunk line or if you've got some other network congestion, that can compound. So what, what means, okay, the request coming in from your local game client takes a couple extra milliseconds. Well, and then it getting into that server takes a couple of milliseconds. And then that mm-hmm. request you know, does two or three other things on the network and you're compounding that few milliseconds Mm -hmm. of lag every time you need to hop around Mm -hmm. in your own data center. And Mm -hmm. then on the way back Mm -hmm. out again could accumulate. I don't know. It's all It's fun though. It's fun speculation. Yeah, it's fun. So that's, that's it. If you, if you work at Activision and you're hearing this, please email us.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Feedback at refactor Actually, you know what? We're way over time. Let me, um, why don't we just get that rolling right now and we'll we'll roll right it's into a segue? That. It's, it's, look at that segue. I mean, I, I did two awesome segues today. Per- we went from we went from your your per- My sequel first. thing, and then we we use some of that performance stuff to actually talk about a game. I mean, come on. Where else are you gonna find stuff like this? That's nowhere, I
0: say. Nowhere, Frank. Nowhere.
1: <laughs> this is the
0: only place on the internet. And a lovely place it is. <laughs>
1: Well, if you happen to be a sysadmin at Activision, this is technically Blizzard underneath of Activision Blizzard. So if you happen to be a sysadmin for Blizzard, uh, I'd love to know how close did we get <laughs> based on your very, very <laughs> obtuse description to your tech illiterate <laughs> public. Uh, let us know. Feedback at refactored.org. If you want to find out more about the show notes, uh, we'll link to this article, for example. We'll link to the uh, the tool that took Chris 89 uh, 89 minutes to, uh, figure out, uh, send, uh, t- you can head over to the website. Wow. I really butchered that. Um, refactor. work is the website. You, beep, beep, beep. So you refact- got to hand back in one of your smooth segue. Yeah. Cards I got it. Yeah. I got a tandem That's all right. I'm still plus one at this point. Um, you're still plus one. Yeah. I'm still plus one. So if you want to hear, read more about what, uh, Chris is up to on the broader interwebs, you can go to chris.tonkinson.com. My own stuff is over at HotColes, K-O-E-H-L-S dot com. And this has been episode 37 on August 31st, 2021. Thanks again, Chris. Thanks, Frank.